Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today's episode is something special for us, and we hope for you as well. It's hard to believe, but CISO Tradecraft has been producing episodes for about two years now, and this is our 100th episode. We've covered quite a bit of ground over that time. We thought we'd do a little reflection on our previous episodes and highlight seven differentiators that set world-class CISOs apart from others. So stick around and learn these seven tips that will enable you to enhance your CISO tradecraft, and I hope it will help you have a more successful career. The first tip we want you to understand is that you must always help others to understand your viewpoints through connection. Now, there's one thing to note. The way you connect depends on the size of the audience. We observe that there's usually three different audience sizes that you'll connect with. Individuals or one-on-one, small teams, which would be between two and say 20 people, and then large groups, which would be more than 20. With individuals, it's all about building the one-on-one connection. An example of folks who excel at building connections are spies. Spies have a mission to build connections with others and recruit them to share important information. Now, if you go back to episode number 84, we brought Robin Dreek on the show to talk about building relationships of trust. Robin was a longtime FBI agent who excelled in recruiting and turning Russian spies. In the episode, Robin talked about the key to building relationships of trust, and he mentioned four key recommendations. Number one, seek the thoughts and opinions of others. Number two, talk in terms of priorities, pain points, and challenges of others. Number three, use non-judgmental validation. That is, seek to understand others without judging them. And number four, empowering others with choices and give them the cause and effect of each choice. Are you noticing a common theme in all four of these recommendations? None of them are about yourself. It's all about the other person. And there's a lot more detail in that episode, so be sure to check it out if you haven't yet listened to it. We'd also like to add one more key point to these thoughts from Robin. It's about seeking the thoughts and opinions of others. And you might be thinking to yourself, how do I connect with others so they actually tell me their unfiltered opinions? Jim Lawler, a 25-year veteran CIA operations officer, came on Robin Dreek's Forging Trust podcast and provided a very interesting quote. He said, You don't recruit people when you are in transmit mode. You recruit people by listening. Therefore, find ways to listen with great questions. Imagine if you ask these three powerful questions from Andy Ellis. Number one, what is the stupidest risk that we are not taking care of that no one has dealt with? Number two, what's the dumbest security control that gets in your way? Number three, What is something that you wish we did better in security? Now, after you ask these three questions, take Jim's advice and just listen. We mean to actively listen to every word coming off the other person's lips. Don't just listen for the purpose of responding right away and providing your opinion and guidance. Remember, good listeners are very hard to come by, and it's uncommon to find people who really take an interest in others. So, Listen with the purpose of understanding what the other person wants, not what you intend to say right back. When you care enough to truly listen, people feel heard, and this generates a connection.
In addition to listening with others one-on-one, you'll also need to connect in small teams. And this might be your executive leadership team, might be your boss and your peers. But to build connections with small groups, you must enable conversations of candor. Now, if you haven't heard of the word candor, it means the quality of being open and honest in expression or frankness. Here's a couple examples of doing that. On episode number 27, we talked about how the Boy Scouts use the concept of roses, buds, and thorns. And for those who are scouting leaders, after each camp out, you talk about what's gone well, the roses, what new ideas are working, the buds, and what are the things you want to stop, the thorns. By consistently asking these questions in each of your staff meetings, you enable everyone the opportunity to speak their mind. They have a venue to speak up, and now if you really want to connect with small groups and build trust, then please act on their guidance. If someone says a particular person isn't responding, reach out to that other individual and say, I'd really appreciate if you could assist so-and-so with this problem. You're using the power of your leadership position to influence this other person. When you step in for your team and work to help them, they'll consider you as a good leader who helps his or her people. When I was served in the Navy, as a captain, you wear eagles on your insignia, and I would tell my sailors that, I work for you. It's a two-way street. What do I mean by that? Certainly, I'm in command. I'm the boss. At the end of the day, I can just issue orders. But I'd rather talk to somebody and say, look, you have a mission to accomplish, and so do I. And if you have somebody who is getting in your way, and you've done everything possible to accomplish your task, and yet this other person is obstructing you, give me a call, and these angry eagles will swoop in and clear that person out of the way. So I've got your back. But at the same time, I need you to have my back and make sure that we get things done when they need to get done. And that's a two-way agreement that worked really well. People thought it was pretty cool that their boss had their back and said, hey, the cabin will help me out if I need it. And so by doing this, you enable trust and you strengthen connections. Another example of creating conversations of candor is problem framing. Now, note you can learn about all the steps in problem framing from episode number 14, how to compare software. Now, in today's discussion, we're not talking about software, but about people. But in that episode, we talked about the importance of applying problem framing to understand limitations in politics. The first two steps of that seven-step methodology were defining the problem and stating the intended objective. To best solve problems in an organization, it's important everyone agrees that something is a real problem worth focusing on. If each person has a different problem in mind, then there really isn't going to be any meaningful agreement. So start by getting consensus. We all agree that this is the exact problem that we are solving today. Now, once the room agrees on a problem, you need everyone to agree on an intended objective. And you could think of these as SMART goals. And you know the acronym, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, or sometimes realistic, and time-bound. For example, let's say that today our organization is unable to retain quality talent. We see many of our best and brightest going to other companies for more money. So your organization creates an intended objective. For next year, we will seek to retain 80% of our employee population throughout the year that are not retiring. And this metric will enable our company to measure ourselves each month to see if we're successful and we'll allow everyone to connect by working together on the same issue. Now, naturally, there needs to be resources allocated to achieve this goal. But if you have this stated objective in place, you're much more likely to set up your organization for success. 
The last audience size is large groups. In large groups, you don't have the opportunity to connect with everyone and have detailed conversations. Additionally, with over 20 folks, it becomes very difficult to have a conversation with everyone, being able to provide their opinions and their feedback. And so for this audience, we recommend using gamification techniques to build connections. Most executives are competitive. We've all been involved in friendly competitions growing up, as well as many of us have played some type of organized support. So if we create a game that increases active participation, provides immediate feedback, includes dynamic interaction, has competition or novelty, and improves the company's ability to achieve a goal, then you're on to something truly special. And if you would like to learn more about gamification concepts and the four player types that you'll need to support, please check out episode number 65, which is entitled, Shall We Play a Game? The second differentiator of the seven used by world-class CISOs involves understanding how to build an effective metrics program that drives ownership and accountability. If there isn't someone accountable, then chances are the project's going to fail. So we need to have an accountable party and a good metric to show progress. Remember, that which gets measured gets done, and that which gets done well gets funded again. So to create good metrics, we want you to use the four lines approach. Every metric needs a start line, a trend line, a goal line, and a timeline. See, a metric needs to have a start line to show the current status of where the organization is right now. This allows the accountable parties to have a scoreboard. You can think of playing a pickup game of basketball. If you're just playing for fun, well, people may not play their best. However, if you put up a scoreboard, suddenly it becomes competitive and people put forth a little more effort. And this helpful competition increases individual as well as team productivity. A metric should have a trend line to show how things have gone over the past four months. Are things getting better, getting worse, or staying the same? This tells management when something's going wrong because negative trends indicate we need to change our course of action. For example, if we see that the number of high and critical vulnerabilities on our Sarbanes-Oxley applications continues to increase, and we need to identify the root cause. Are there enough resources on those teams? Is something wrong from an architectural perspective? Are our vendors not giving us the support we need? And so on. If you're not watching the trend line, you'll miss identifying when things are forecasted to go bad and end up taking corrective action much later than you could have. Metrics need a finish line. This is a goal that the organization is targeting. It has a clearly defined definition of done. For example, let's say we really care about ransomware and being able to restore critical applications from offline backups. We need to be specific on our restoration capabilities. If a server goes down, do we have four hours, eight hours, 24 hours or more before it catastrophically impacts the business? This matters since the business is going to have to both recreate all the data lost in the amount of time that it was down as well as account for a loss of operational efficiencies when those key IT systems are down. And compliance can have a big impact on this as well. So make sure you know your requirements. And lastly, metrics also need a timeline. We need to set a time to which we hold people accountable for reaching the finish line. Goals or definitions of done might go on forever, which isn't what you want. You want results, and that comes from accountability. And therefore, ensure every task has a clear owner with a clear deadline. Note, if you want to hear more about these four lines, please check out episode number 69 on aligning security initiatives with business objectives.
The third differentiator of seven for world-class CISOs is understanding the shift between being competent versus being effective. On episode number 62, entitled Promotion Through Politics, we talked about the four major phases in your career and the different skill sets you must display to get promoted. At first, you're an individual contributor, and in this role, you get promoted by demonstrating technical skills. This phase usually lasts several years, and if you're proficient in your area of expertise, you'll get promoted to a first-line manager. Now, if we use the Navy as an example, if you're a skilled pilot, you'll compete well for promotion to lieutenant commander or major in the non-sea services. And here you must demonstrate your management skills. You're going to execute the budget, you have to manage paperwork effectively, you have to meet deadlines. And if you learn and do all this well, you get to become a manager of managers and are welcomed into middle management. Now, back in the Navy, if you do well as a department head, you'll be a strong candidate to promote to commander or lieutenant colonel and select for executive officer, then potentially for commanding officer. And this is where you must demonstrate leadership skills, inspiring and strengthening your team, setting and achieving stretch goals, accomplishing your mission through innovation. Now, today, less than half of those officers will be offered a promotion to captain or colonel. And if you've seen the Top Gun Maverick movie, you'll see that Tom Cruise's character as a captain does all these things. He portrays a seasoned leader, building a team, teaching teamwork skills, inspiring confidence, leading by example, rather than just playing a hotshot pilot competing against his peers as he did in the first movie. Although he still is the best of the best in the cockpit, but I don't want to spoil any of the plot if you still want to see it. Now, this is where you get some of the most rewarding opportunities in your career, leading men and women and accomplishing great tasks. Now, many careers will top out here. Brigadier General Jeremy Horn writes in his article, The Ten Secret Rules of the Colonel, that, quote, Colonel is the last rank that you can make through personal effort. Everything from here on out is luck and timing, quote. He's right, and that's going to be true in civilian careers and corporate careers as well as government and the military. Invitations to the executive suite, known in the Navy as being a flag officer, requires excellence in your record, your reputation, and your relationships. And if you want to read some more about my thoughts on that topic, look up my article on running up the flagpole, something I wrote about Navy careers back in 2005. Now, finally, if you're lucky and you haven't burned too many bridges, you get welcomed into the executive suite. In the Navy, that would be promotion to rear admiral or brigadier general in the land services. And that selection rate, by the way, was less than 1% in my community. Think about that. 99% of Navy captains retire as a captain. Essentially, you can consider this as your terminal pay grade. Think about that in your own career. Is there a point where, for the most part, everybody's going to top out except for a very, very select few? You see, that realization does one of three things. There are a few that hit cruise control or on what we used to call the road program, retired on active duty. But the majority work well in their roles and serve honorably and effectively. And for those in the military, they're looking for a good civilian job to transition out. But for a handful of us, it became no fear. Senior leadership could not hold over your head that you're not going to get the next promotion if you took a risk and lost. So you go for things that are considered impossible and you make them happen. I remember back when I had a chance to promote to captain. I was taking command of a unit that had a captain commanding officer and there were captains there, but I was still a commander. In the Navy, you could compete for the next higher pay grade if you were already selected and approved by Congress 
but you had to have what was called a frocking letter. It was basically a formal statement that said that you've been selected for promotion. Congress has approved it. The president has signed off on it. You don't yet have your date of rank, but then also you had to be in a command billet. Now that happens to maybe 2% or 3%. And I was fortunate enough to have been frocked to both commander and to captain, having served in leadership roles at the next higher pay grade. But think about it. You don't want to show up as a commander when the people working for you are going to be captains. You're like, oh, who is this young guy? So I requested this and I waited. And finally, I'm thinking, you know, I'm taking command tomorrow. It's Saturday and it's Friday afternoon. I called up my friend Larry and I said, Larry, I don't have my my frocking letter yet. I don't have authority to put on the captain. And his great advice was, ah, go frock yourself. But I remember the fax machine, and we had them back then, came to life, and out came this frocking letter saying, you are authorized as of today, September 28th, 2001, to pin on the rank insignia of captain. You don't get the pay grade, you don't get the pay, but you don't, but you get the privilege. So I remember taking up the box, opening it up, and I had my uniform hanging there on the door jam, and I pinned on the eagles. And I stepped back and I went, whoa. It's a concept of awesome. We say that kind of casually, but the idea of being kind of full of awe. It had been 25 years since I first put on a Navy uniform as a midshipman. And now, a quarter of a century later, here I am, captain. And my first thought was, whoa. (laughs) And the second thought was, now I know the day I die. I've only got until my 30-year mark to make all the difference in the Navy that I can. The idea of making Admiral was aspirational, but as I said, over 99% of us aren't going to get there. And so for me, that set me forth on that idea of no fear. Go make stuff happen. And I was very privileged. The Navy offered me four command assignments as a captain. You're only supposed to get two. That's your limit. But hey, I'm a hacker. I figured out ways around it. And one of the opportunities was creating a command from scratch at the Center for Naval Leadership. I was privileged to be the first commanding officer of that fine organization. And we went on to train leadership skills through about 10,000 sailors a year, every year, with a cadre of about 170 instructors. It was pretty cool. And so think about it when you get to that level in your career. Do you want to be on the road program? Do you want to just kind of be competent? Or do you want to just go for stuff? Because what's the worst that can happen? You're not going to promote anyway, so make a difference. Now, if you consider some of the names that you might remember from the military, like Colonel John Boyd, you've heard of his OODA loop, right? Observe, orient, decide, and act. Or Colonel David Hackworth, the most decorated officer from the Korean War and the Vietnam War, had two distinguished service crosses, 10 silver stars, eight bronze stars. And if you're not in the military, but that doesn't mean anything to you, go talk to somebody in the military. They'll tell you that's completely off the scale. But they retired as colonels, not generals. You see, in the final career phase at the very top, it's not about leadership. It's not about individual accomplishment. It's all about politics. See, leaders show their political acumen to get recognized as being able to serve at this level. And those who do not understand this think they're just brown-nosing, but it really is a manner of virtue signaling if done at the right point in one's career. At the highest levels, let's take the military, for example— You're dealing with the other services, with Congress, with the press, with billion-dollar contracts with contractors. All these things require political skills. And if you've just walked up saying, hey, I've got an awesome record, and I've done amazing things, and I've done these great leadership tools, 
but you haven't demonstrated your political acumen, you're going to wonder, how come I didn't get promoted? Well, guess what? I know now, but a dozen years too late. Now, if you want to move between levels in your career, there's one subtle thing that we want you to understand about executives, and it's this concept of being competent versus being effective. When you're an individual contributor in a first-line manager roles, you must be competent. For example, a pen tester who can't go hands-on to the keyboard to find vulnerabilities isn't providing much value. A firewall engineer who can't change the access control rules isn't helping. You must display competence. However, by the time you're a manager of managers, you aren't touching a keyboard much anymore. So your competence isn't as important. It's important that you know what good looks like, what excellent looks like, so you can provide your team guidance. However, your ability to troubleshoot a firewall is probably behind you. You need to make the shift to focus on effectiveness. Instead of improving only yourself, you need to improve the effectiveness of the people assigned to you. If you can make everybody 100% more productive, then that's like having twice as many people on your team. Now, here's another example. There's a company that hired a CISO who wasn't technical. He'd never had traditional cybersecurity roles, such as running a security operations center, building a compliance organization to keep auditors happy, or even implementing antivirus or firewalls. However, this CISO was really good at connecting with others and getting resources. After meeting with all the technical experts within the cyber organizations, he learns they need additional funding. So he plays around to golf with the CEO and gets the resources necessary to increase the team size to the appropriate levels. Later on, he gets asked technical questions by the CIO about why the application security tools have so many false positives. He responds, he'll discuss the concern with his technical experts, and later on, he brings those experts into a meeting where they brief the CIO on why the AppSec tools have issues and the recommendation and the way forward to fix them. And this resolves the CIO concerns. Now, I mentioned this story because the CISO was not competent as an application security expert. However, he was extremely effective in his role. Now, of course, competent CISOs can do more. But the main point we want you to understand is at the executive level, you need to spend your time learning how to get things done more effectively. And you do this by enabling or kind of coercing in some cases, others to accomplish the work, not by becoming increasingly competent as a technical contributor. The fourth differentiator of world-class CISOs is they are amazing communicators. Who wants to listen to a boring presentation? The answer is no one. So don't be that type of speaker. Imagine your world-class communicator that your CXO peers love hearing from. Now, that type of speaker is going to get invited to talk again and again. And when that happens, you get the opportunity to influence, to change behavior, to discuss high-priority risks, and to be seen. And this is all goodness. On episode number 61, we talk about presentation skills and how to give great presentations. And we discuss a J.P. Phillips TED Talk that explains if you want listeners to remember your talk, try adding a cliffhanger. If you want to build trust with a team, then tell something vulnerable about yourself. And finally, if you want people to be focused and relaxed, maybe try to be overly dramatic or funny. But don't force the funny if you're not funny. I'll accept that, please. But also, don't just try to communicate via email and PowerPoint. In episode number 75, Avoiding Death by PowerPoint, we talk about using escape rooms or tabletop exercises and polls to create unique experiences that others will enjoy. Mix it up a little and you'll improve your ability 
to influence others. The fifth differentiator that sets up world-class CISOs for success is they align security initiatives with business objectives. In episode number 69, we talked about profit generation, cost reduction, service enablement, and customer and market outreach is the four key objectives that build profitable growth for business. To best learn the business objectives and build relationships of trust with a C-suite, you need to learn how to partner. And we give detailed explanations of this process in episode number 70, Partnership is Key. One example is the marketing department. Now, they often direct where the IT organization needs to build its next web page or widget. However, marketing folks are often not technical. Now, imagine if you're the CISO that really gets on well with them, so you and they both partner together to identify a way to send marketing material via text and social media platforms such as TikTok or WeChat and others. And marketing estimates that this will create millions of dollars of new sales. So the marketing team, the CIO, and the CISO brief the CEO and CFO to ask for an additional budget to perform this effort. The CEO and CFO hear the business case, listen to the CIO saying this can be built in a six-month time frame. The CEO and the CFO also hear from the CISO that this can be done securely. And marketing says this is going to create a lot of profit opportunity. So after due consideration, they approve the funding request. Guess what? That's a big win for the company. And since you were involved early with marketing, you also have the greatest opportunity to design security correctly on the new solution versus being asked to prove something the week before it goes live. So find ways to connect through partnership and always focus on enabling business objectives. The sixth differentiator that sets CISOs up for success is they can create effective risk governance and management processes within an organization. The business must see that cyber is a business risk and not just an IT risk. For example, when a system XYZ is unavailable, how does that affect each of the users of that IT system? What business processes fail? What are the potential impacts on revenue and customer service? You see, this is why cyber risks need to be acknowledged by both the business owners who can identify the consequences of downtime and the IT maintainers who can actually remediate the findings. Now, one important thing to remember is approval authorities. For example, who in your organization has purchasing authority for $2 million of software? Can any manager do this? Or does it need to receive approval from a director, vice president, senior vice president? maybe even the board. A quick conversation with a CFO can confirm spending levels. And once you know the spending authorities, then you can make a comparison that accepting $2 million in cyber risk is the same as approving $2 million in additional spending that avoids that risk entirely. Now, if a third-party risk assessment identifies $2 million in new software risk, then the business must acknowledge the risk by either moving forward, you accept the risk, you reject the software, you avoid the risk, or you find a way to remediate the vulnerability before using that software. Now, the fourth option has always been assigning the risk, which we typically do through insurance, but be really careful about cyber insurance because, in my opinion, cyber insurance, business interruption insurance, only provides for the orderly demise of your business. While you're getting a check from the insurance company to pay salaries of the people who are restoring your systems and recover your devices and your things that were brought down maybe by a ransomware attack, your customers need whatever it is that you provide and they've gone on to somebody else in a hurry. And when you come back in a couple months and said, hey, you know what? We're up and running again. They're going to say, well, that's great. We really loved you as a supplier, but 
we needed somebody and we're on a one-year contract. So call us back in nine or 10 months. Okay. So be careful about this, that don't just assume because you get cyber insurance or business interruption insurance, that things will go well. You need to go ahead and be much more proactive and bring that message to your leadership. Remember the purpose of cyber isn't to say no, it's to say how. Your purpose is to be in the business of revenue protection. Let me say that again. The purpose of cyber is to be in the business of revenue protection. Cyber protects revenue when the business owners can make business decisions in their best interest. And most business executives will not understand the likelihood of a system being compromised, but that's where cyber can show its real value. So you can communicate the vulnerabilities within systems to the business and risk committees and governance boards, allowing cyber and the business to document the risk decisions being made. And when you document discussions and decisions based on risk and money, then you are acting like an executive and this is the way to success. The last world-class differentiator for CISOs is they are successful in their jobs. Want to know how to set up for success in any job? If so, then please follow this piece of advice. You must accomplish three things. Number one, you need to get the job done. If others refer to you as a closer for finishing the jobs, then you build trust. When leadership knows they can trust you with little things, you get bigger responsibilities. Mission accomplishment is the coin of the realm. The second thing to being successful in any job is you must cover all the angles. Never let an overlooked detail derail you. Good executives run efficient programs and projects that finish on time and within budget. And when things don't go as forecasted, there should not be a big surprise to anyone since you keep a close watch on all the details. Now, if you keep track of the details and think things through, then you can be successful. But you succeed in this area by creating a culture of no fear and specifically of not shooting messengers. Are your people confident they can come to you early with potential issues for situational awareness, consideration, or, or even possible resolution? Can even the most junior person speak up and point out what might be a problem? Now, if it isn't a problem, don't cut them down and say, you stupid idiot, you're a rookie, you don't know what's going on, I'm the boss, I know what's going on, because you'll never hear from them again. And don't let anybody else on your team cut down a new person either. That's really important. But you want to patiently point out that that issue is already covered. But thank you for keeping your eyes open and for looking out for the organization. And if you see other potential problems, please continue to speak up. Validate people who show an interest in the outcome of your core objectives and the success of the business. Even if they find something that they think is a problem that you know isn't, don't cut them down. Help them understand what you know and bring them up, but continue to help them contribute because you make better decisions when you don't have people afraid to bring you bad news. And I think we can all imagine a global leader today that none of us would want to approach saying, mm, things aren't going well and according to plan. See, don't be that kind of boss. The final and most important thing to succeed in any job is to keep the customer happy. Remember, if the customer isn't happy, then it doesn't matter what you've done. The key thing to remember is determining who is the customer with every project. Sometimes it's your boss, sometimes it's a business, and sometimes it's actually an external corporate customer. If you know who that is and you keep them happy, then you usually have a high probability that you'll stay gainfully employed and will enjoy future success. Well, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the seven ways that world-class CISOs set themselves up for success. Let's recap. Number one, focus on building connections. 
Number two, leverage effective metrics programs that drive ownership and accountability. Number three, know that effectiveness is more valuable than being competent at the executive level and know the four phases of your career, technical, management, leadership, political, and generate knowledge and skill in each of those as they come. Number four, be a great communicator. Number five, align security initiatives with business objectives. Number six, create effective risk governance and management processes. And finally, number seven, practice the three tips to being successful in any job. Now, if you want to learn more great tips on being an effective CISO, please take a look at our GitHub page, which lists each of our podcast episodes under 10 high-level topics. And also note there's a link to each of the episodes we mentioned in our show notes. And finally, if you learn something that you like, please help us celebrate 100 episodes of CISO Tradecraft by leaving us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Those ratings really help us reach other security leaders. The more CISOs we can help, the more businesses we can protect. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy, and thanks again for listening. Stay safe out there.